Hey, I'm Karuna, and I'm the founder and executive director of Mind Oasis. And with me today is Manorma on my podcast, Tea, Talk, and Truth with Karuna. But what I'm super excited about is Manorma is an expert in Sanskrit, and she's going to first share how to appropriately pronounce both her name and mine. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Um, your name would be pronounced Karuna with the tip of the tongue up in the center of the mouth for the nasal, Arna, and then uh, the long A at the end. So that's where the accent would be. It would be Karuna. Karuna. Yeah. So that would be Karuna. And it's a beautiful word, of course, compassion. One, And if it's as a name, it's meant as one who is filled with compassion, kindness, uh, generosity, one who is one who has a, a very large heart uh, shares that. And um, my name is pronounced Manorama with the accent again on that last ah, uh, the O and the ah. Yeah. Hi, so nice to be here with you. Manorama, what is your name? Oh, oh hello. <laughs> it's awesome. Let me, um, let me put that thing on that you're supposed to put on. Sorry. Oh, it's totally fine. We'll either edit it out or we'll keep it because it's fun always to have these little glimpses into one another's real life, right? We yeah, put on yeah. makeup, we do these things, and oh, then we show up. But no, if nothing else happens. <laughs> but swaha, if it does, we just deal with it. Okay, that's my father. He likes to call regularly. Um, yeah. Your name, what does Manorma mean? Uh, Manorma means, well, um, Basically, it's the meeting of two pieces, manaha and rama. So ram is the root to play or to sport and um, to be charming. And manaha is the heart or the mind. So that which is charming to the heart or the mind is called manorama. Oh, it's so beautiful. So as I was preparing for our time together today, yeah. um, I went to your website. Can you just share the, the URL with us so people can go there? Uh, it's sanskritstudies.org. Awesome. So before we get into you and all of your wonderful um, things that you're up to in this world, I went to your website and I was just um, really taken by how long you have been steeped in the world of Sanskrit. Can you just talk a little bit? I mean, you started out as, as a child. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so that's a good way of putting it steeped. I love that choice of words. It's so beautiful. And it, it really, I do feel a bit like a tea bag <laughs> or a, a well-made soup or something like that. Like I, um, I met my guru um, in the traditional style uh, when I was 13. I had a, some interaction with him, but not direct when I was 12 through my mother. My mother used to go and listen to him talk. He was a, there's a picture of him here actually, that was completely by accident, but it's nice to see this is one of his albums when he was younger. Um, but in any event, um, he was a brain surgeon, an ophthalmologist, a psychiatrist, had a PhD in Sanskrit, was an acupuncturist. Um, you can see that he uh, did, he put meridian lines on all the chakra. And that was some innovation back in the day. Now, of course, it's sort of not as innovative, but then it was. 
And he, um, you know, he, for me, I know that guru is a tough term for a lot of people because we don't really understand it and all that we hear much about it is kind of like somebody abusing someone else. So, you know, it, it really feels like a, a tough term for people in the West. But for me, it was a wonderful term. It was, it was like my grandfather. He treated me extremely well. I was taken under his, I, he took me under his wing. We, our personalities got along, that helped. And um, he was at the end of his life. I was at the beginning of mine. And I had the good fortune to train with him in the very uh, traditional style of Guru Shishya Parampara. And it, for me, it's like, I take back that word. Guru for me is a very good word. However, mm -hmm. I'm aware of the, the other usages and the confusion around it and the mischief that people make. But in my experience, with my own teacher. It was a wonderful journey. And I uh, trained with him in the subject of meditation, yoga philosophy, and of course, Sanskrit. So Sanskrit was really foundational. He was um, one of the, my guru, Sri Brahmananda Saraswati, was one of the people who came from, who went from India and came to the West and brought yoga to the West. So he was one of the top 10 to 14 yogis that came from the East, bringing yoga to the West. Um, and I was his final serious student uh, before he left his body. We say Mahasamadhi. He took Mahasamadhi, the great absorption. And I just, you know, that was my background to train with him. And it was a mix of sort of a feeling of like Mr. Miyagi meets my grandpa. You know, he was, and yet he was very strict when it came to Sanskrit rules. And, and he, you know, he was very deliberate in his training with me and with others, many others. Um, but he was also tender and he was also sweet and it was just lovely, amazing experience, amazing journey. Um, I didn't realize it was gonna be such a mythology for other people. Um, it was just my life, you know? And I, had, and I should say, I should preface this by saying that when I was a kid, I was pretty much a punk kid. I wasn't a punk rock kid, but I was, a tough kid, my parents had gotten divorced, uh, life sucked. I was living in my grandparents' basement when I met uh, my teacher because you know, my mom had a series of difficulties and we ended up, she and I living you know, in our grandparents' house and that's the only area that had spare space. And so it wasn't like I was, I always tell people I wasn't born to a virgin mother under a rock, you know? I. I experienced the trials and the difficulties of life. Some of them came to me a little earlier than some other people. And so I think as I reflected in the last bunch of years, maybe that made me ready for the experience, you know, but I was a tough kid. I was, I wouldn't say I was lost, but I was definitely spun around and I was really in need of guidance and my parents they had their own stresses and traumas that they were trying to resolve for themselves and they weren't able to really take on their, th I was their third kid and they were just kind of like not, um, couldn't <laughs> handle it. You know, they were just like, we don't know what to do. So my mother, I feel like my mother was like, here, can you help her? You know? And she said years later, Karuna, that um, she always wanted uh, Guruji, we call him Guruji, mm -hmm. our Guru to have uh, an influence on me. She had no idea that I would become his right hand. That's mm, such a beautiful, rich story. I have so many questions. Oh, first, okay. First, sure. Could you um, say a little bit more about Mahasmadi? 
Oh, okay. So uh, in what context, what is it? Maham? Yeah, like for list people who are watching or listening that maybe have, haven't heard the words Maha or Samadhi, um, you know, it, to okay. me, it sounds like the, the great awakening, um, but, yeah. but what does it mean to you or what does it mean to you in relationship to your Guruji? Um, okay, so it's a deep, beautiful question. So Maha means great. And samadhi is absorption, mm. and it's yogic absorption. Uh, so it it comes well, it comes from a lot of things, but something that we can easily connect with is Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutra. And in his eight limbs, the last three limbs are called dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. So these are called sayama when they work in tandem together, when they come together. So dharana is, you know focus on a point and then dhyana is absorption in that point and then samadhi is complete absorption and I, I like to liken it to cooking you know first it's like okay you're on the point of putting like yesterday I cooked broccoli it's like on the point of putting the broccoli in the pot that's the point I'm on the broccoli I got the, out of the fridge I'm gonna put it in the pot so all my focus is on the broccoli next thing you know I put the flame on now it's cooking literally and figuratively and it's cooking. And so now the broccoli is doing its thing, you know, between the uncooked state and the cooked state. And then at some point I was checking it with a fork. Now it's completely cooked. Now it's, it's transformed through the process of the heat and the attention and the focus. Now it's, I mean, I'm using this as obviously the broccoli isn't having a samadhi, but this is a philosophical concept, but it's transformed through that sort of three-part process. So samadhi means the absorption, the complete oneness with the object. And if we say that meditation is, let's say in meditation, one of the questions, I mean, there's lots of styles of meditation, but let's say one of the primary questions is who am I? Mm -hmm. And the resolution is not necessarily a verbal answer, but the experiential answer of selfhood or selfness or just self. Then the samadhi is the absorption with that, the unity that we experience with that, the no separation. You know, what happened to the broccoli? It became transformed. It's still broccoli, but now it's a transformed broccoli. It's, it's gone to that other level of broccoli of cookedness or something like that. So now, maha, so samadhi, this is, you know, the yogi meditates on the object and becomes one with the object. And I don't mean a separate object because in meditation, it's an internal object. So Mahasamadhi has been loosely termed as when a yogi devotes their life to the subject of yoga and they are living in the reality of a meditative reality on a regular daily basis and they have transformed consciousness. When they leave their body, they're not said to die. They are said to uh, take the great absorption. They take Mahasamadhi. So we wouldn't say that every person takes Mahasamadhi because not every person is conscious. But when you have a conscious death through yoga, it's called the Mahasamadhi. That help? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was like, that makes sense. It was so, awesome. And the broccoli example was really, really beautiful. So um, when I hear you speak of your teacher, I have a guru. So to me, this is this is my arena, but you're right. A lot, particularly, I think in the West, a lot of people are like, what the hell is that? So 
Um, when I hear you speak of, of all of his different talents, he reminds me of Patanjali. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Well said, actually. Well, well called, you know, um, and I'll, should I pick up from there a little bit? Uh, yeah. Patanjali was, I mean, he was attributed to the uh, Charaka Samhita. He was attributed the uh, Mahabhashya for grammar, the Charaka Samhita for the body and the mind, and of course, yoga philosophy and yoga sutra. So my guru also had aspects of the mind, aspects of yoga philosophy. Um, and he was, of course, from a doctor's level, the body. So yeah, there's, it's, um, it's a beautiful correlation. I think, I think in general, also like, something I've noticed about not every Indian, but many Indian people, uh, they train very deeply in subjects. You know, the man who um, played tabla on my CDs, he's a full-fledged doctor. And then he decided to become a tabla player and he went deep into the tabla. So deep into medicine, deep into tabla. I don't think this kind of idea is so unusual in India. I think it's less common in uh, US for sure. Um, but there's this idea of going deep into things. And definitely my guru was uh, uh, extremely knowledgeable. He was, I always say he was very brainy, but he didn't lose the juice. He was still mm. good. You know, because sometimes people can be brainy and it's hard to listen to after a while. You're like, well, that's interesting. And I'm impressed, but <laughs> it didn't change me, you know? Like you need yeah. the heart too. Yeah, you need the karuna, exactly. So <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, so he had a lot of that karuna, that rasa, that that uh, deep feeling at the same time and he merged them. And I thought that was, when I met him, even as a child, I noted that right away and I thought it was a very cool combination to be so uh, so knowledgeable, so scholarly, so scientific and at the same time, having all this sweetness, tenderness, juice, passion for the subject of yoga. Um, you know, I think we don't understand the word passion in yogic usage because we, we try to get away from passion and we want to move from our attachments and our passions. But uh, there is a way to engage the word that doesn't mean you're becoming a passionate lover. It can mean that you are deeply devoted to something. You are focused on something, right? Yeah, the devotional path is really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. So before we move to mantra, you mentioned your CD, so I'm happy that we're going there. But just quickly, where in the world were you when you when you met your, your guru and you were- um, Where was it happening? Yeah, where were you? Um, I was in upstate New York. Okay, cool. Oh, you mean like locate me in New York? Yeah, like, I was just trying to yeah. kind of orient you in the world. Like I, di I didn't know where you were physically when you, yeah. I was in uh, Cornwall, New York, and his yoga center was in the next town over. And it was a terrible time in my life. It's funny, I recently have been reflecting on this because so many people ask me about the story that I was thinking like, what actually? Because, you know, when it's your life, it's just, you go to this moment, you draw right. <laughs> you don't think about it, but I think um, it was, a, if I reflect on it, it was a tough time in life. I was, uh, I was, I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I was down and I was living with my grandparents. I had moved schools and my mom was pretty down and, but it ended up being a good move and she did the right thing. 
um, from a variety of standpoints. And of course, you know, my mother and I, we weren't close. When I was younger, we were very, uh, I don't know, like this, because she wasn't this kind of person. I'm a little more like, you know, my, you can hear it in my voice. I have an energy. I have, a, you know, a kind of strength to it. She was more like this. She spoke like this. But she had her own strength and her own power in her particular way. But we didn't, we couldn't find each other somehow in my early years. But she had some psychic. It's a true story. I've never told. There was some psychic that my mother was very good friends with. She always had these amazing people. She was best friends with Buddhist monks. Um, rabbis were always calling the house. She was giving money to the nuns. I mean, my mother was, you know, I used to tell her, can you pick a lane? You know, my mom, <laughs> like, I'm a universalist. I'm not picking a lane. So, and she taught me something with that. You know, that was her, that was her path. And that is a very valid, wonderful path for many, many people. You know, you don't. Uh, and I have more to say on that, but anyhow, she, um, so she was, you know, in this way, we just, we didn't find each other, but this psychic told her, you're going to go on this great journey with your daughter. And my mother has another daughter, my sister, uh, and she's older than me. And they they were very close, when, you know, when my sister was younger. And she said, uh, you're going to go on a journey with your daughter and it's going to be totally spiritual and transformative. So my mother said to me a few years after, like, never like we looked at each other like we never imagined it would be I, I didn't know anything about it at the time but when she had heard that she never imagined and it turned out to be this not only this amazing journey in spiritual development but also a healing with my mother and um, we found each other through that we shared this immense uh, path together and so we found a lot of healing in our connection that's amazing you just never know where the healing is going to happen Totally. And I mean, I'm telling you, I used to, when I was a teenager, my mother was going through menopause at the time that I was just studying with my teacher. And she used to drive me over from my grandparents' house, drop me off. And then I would spend the day there studying with him. And then she would go to work across the river. She would come back, pick me up and go, we'd go back. But we used to fight the whole way there, <laughs> the whole way. And I remember one morning, I got out of the car so mad as a teenager and I slammed the door shouting some curse word at her and she peeled out of the drive. My Buddha's driver, she peels out and she's on her way, right? Then I realized what I did and I said, oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble. I hope Guji didn't hear me. So I crept into the house, his house pretty slowly, but I heard his feet pitter pattering. Oh boy. The second I opened, you know, like the door, I heard him go, Manorama. I was like, oh. I'm in trouble. And he's like, come on. And I came upstairs and he had a whole mountain of Sanskrit materials. And he said, from now on, play these tapes in Sanskrit, these mantras, these Vedas, from now on, no more, anything else but this. And it was incredible. And that's what we did. We would listen to mantras every day on our Commute. You, this isn't the Ananda ashram, is it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I've sat in the seat of your teacher and meditated oh. in that little nook. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Oh, this is so, such a beautiful realization. That yeah. home and his altars, all of it is Very just beautiful. so beautiful. Oh. What a lovely realization. Oh, I had a feeling. 
that you had been there. I don't know why, but you know. I was there in 20, I'm going to say 2015 with Joseph, uh-huh. my husband, uh-huh. and um, one of my teachers, Michael Hewitt. And it was a beautiful oh, retreat. It was in the cool. middle of winter. Mm-hmm. And we, and it was great because Joseph being from California, he had never walked on frozen water before. So he was, he so made cool. lots of jokes about being a Jewish man walking on the, the water across the, the pond at the ashram. It was really a beautiful retreat. That little ashram lake, we call it a lake or a pond. You're right. It's more of a pond, but it's, uh, it's such a sweet the property there, the land is very sacred and very, very tranquil. And my guru had this thing. He used to let anybody come and anybody could speak, you know, so the politicians came and they would speak. Uh, the rabbis would come and speak. The, uh, just everybody, he invited anybody, yogis, Jain monks, uh, Christians, um, yeah, Africans, uh, anybody could come, anybody could come. Uh, what was the other group? anybody but but the only thing he said was oh native americans that's what i was going to say he had a whole big native american school there but the only thing was you just couldn't talk against anybody else you could Mm. talk for your thing but not against anybody else and in these days of questioning what is unity and really delving deeper into what is disunity and what is unity it really strikes me as such a beautiful thing that i hope we can somehow all find our way back to this feeling of Talk for your thing. Just don't talk against anything else. And let's see if we can build bridges and connectivity. That's really beautiful. So tell us about mantra. Some people won't even know what mantra is. So you can start very basic. And then tell us a little bit about what mantra means for you. I mean, it's kind of your jam. (laughs) Definitely my jam. Um, Well, so the first part is what is mantra? And the second is what is it for me? Yeah. Hmm. Mantra is a vast subject. It is. Mantra is a field of protection. Uh, and it's an energetic configuration of light. I don't really know where what it is for me and what it is is separate. So I'll just maybe they'll merge and see what happens in what I say. But it's an energetic field of light that gets constructed it's, it's communicated from universal source to the individual who has purified consciousness such that they become an open channel whereby, and they have knowledge to be able to access that, whereby they can communicate that. So these different mantras that we now have access to like breadcrumb trails, they literally become like that. They be, we, we follow the breadcrumb trail, we pronounce the mantra, we, or we chant it, we get access to some extent, to a large extent, to the field of understanding. And then, you know, we're growing ourselves in all these different levels through Buddhism, through yoga, through any noble um, self-awareness uh, work. And, um, and we're able to receive another layer and another layer. So I believe that mantras are living entities that meet us on various levels. Um, and like Om Namah Shivaya is not the same mantra to me as it was when I was 12, 13, 15, 17, as it is now that I'm, you know, nearly 50 in body. I mean, it's, they're different mantras. So, 
but there's it's still the same. It's like a, I don't know, like people you know that you're close with, you know, you know them initially, and then you see them through various experiences. So I think they're always opening up. Um, and I think the, the tricky part is when I say that someone will sit down for the first time with a mantra and they will be like, okay, cosmic, amazing experience. Let's go. Om Shanti or Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. And after a while, they're going to be all Om Namah Shivaya. I don't get it. I don't know. You know, but it's not about the thing about mantras is it's so little about us and so much about universality. And if we can enter into them, we, the thing we wanna do is actually not abandon ourselves, but we wanna leave individuality for a time to take a dip, take a swim in the pool of universality. And then when we've done that and we get out of that pool, how does that affect individuality? How does that affect my sense of understanding? The way I relate with Cheryl or Margaret David or my kids or my spouse or <coughs> how does that what is the value of that but what's happening is oftentimes we want to put the value before we've had the experience <laughs> you know you know when people do that in dating it's never a good idea <laughs> you know? and you're like well what's the point or well, what's it gonna what am I gonna get for it you have to go on the ride and when you go on the date you find out nine times out of ten not really the right thing for you, but when you when it is the right thing, it's the experience that takes over, and it becomes its own thing, and you find uh, incredible facets of yourself in that. So, so that's a deeper understanding of mantra. Like we can go to a more uh, kind of um, generalized samanyatvam. We say in Sanskrit, we can say that um, samanyatvam mantraha astikim. What is mantra? It is a configuration of uh, Sanskrit. It began with Sanskrit, the concept of sounds. Man is to think, pra is to protect. Mantra is protection through right thinking. But that's, it's got to go even deeper. So um, when we chant these sounds, there's some kind of protective force that we get mm. access to. And protection isn't always, you know, mm -hmm. That sometimes protection is deeper understanding. In fact, I believe, to take your name into it, that the more we understand compassion, the more we are in right understanding and therefore mantra, your living mantra. But that takes, you know, depth and maturity. And my guess is it also takes a couple other components that I'd love to explore with you. And one would be finding a teacher. In my tradition, my, I'm, I study Tibetan Buddhism in the Glukpa tradition, and my guru is Hector Marcel out of Three Jewels of New York City. Oh, and I yeah. love him to pieces. I, I kiss his yeah. yeah, awesome. Yeah. So Hector La, um, you know, he is my vehicle to connect with these teachings that are 2,500 plus years old, brought over the Himalayas from monks um, fleeing Tibet this past century. Um, so I'd like to hear about you, your philosophy about the importance of a teacher, and then 
and then tell us a little bit about what all you offer right now. You don't have anything scheduled on mind Oasis, but we'll fix that soon. But, but yeah. you have a satsang coming up. You have other offerings that you do um, through your website, uh, sanskritstudies.org. So tell us a little bit about the philosophy, but then also tell us a little bit about your, what you're offering. Cause you are the teacher. <laughs> yeah. So um, great question. Um, I, you know, to, for me, I, I think that there's variations on people, right? There's no one teaching that works for anyone. My mother was deeply involved with uh, Tibetan Buddhism, as a matter of fact, and her, uh, with a group of uh, monks from Chicago, forget the lineage name, I'll have to look that up again. Uh, but I even got a, a Tibetan Buddhist name. They call me Bodhisattva Rainbow, which I love. Oh! Beautiful. They used to say Bodhi, but my sister's is even better. They call her Lotus Pumpkin. (laughs) I love that. That is really beautiful. They have a lovely name for my mother. And, you know, they're, I remember when my mother was sick, my mother said, the monks are, they're fasting for me. And she said it several times. And she was in bed, very sick. And she, you know, she was in a hospital and she was looking up at me telling me, monks are chanting for me. I would say, that's wonderful. She would say, the monks are fasting for me. And I would say, that's wonderful. And she kept saying this and I realized she didn't know what that meant. What does that even mean? So I said, do you know what it means that the monks are fasting for you? She goes, no, but I think it's so nice. (laughs) I said, it means that they are delaying their own to give to you. They are delaying the process of cooking food, eating food, digesting food and all the rest to give you that prana. They're delaying and they're trained in this because as a monk, you train in this. It's not that it makes it easy, but it's perhaps they're more prepared for that option. So then she said, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> but so um, that was her system. Um, and you know, her way, and the reason I mentioned her and that is because her way was and I don't think that's Tibetan Buddhism, way, right? Because you're obviously reflecting a different way. But my mother was a universalist. And like I told you a few minutes ago, I always used to wonder, like, can't you pick a road? Like, And you'd call my mother as a kid. She'd say she was, you know, hanging out with the nuns. Then you'd call her again. Another day, she'd be with a rabbi. It really was confusing for me. I would say, like, do you not know what you want? And she... She just kept doing, and she said for her, it was about universality in all traditions. Later, I came to realize it was a connection with her father and so many other things. My point being that there are people who really groove on a one teacher. I'm that kind of person. I groove on, let's do it. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna go yeah. long, you know? <laughs> all right, take the ball. And other people who are like, that doesn't work for me. There are reasons that doesn't work for me. I want a more broad spectrum. And I've learned, I didn't necessarily know this earlier, but I've learned that that's completely valid and wonderful and beautiful path as well. So from that, you know, I want to put that on the table, which uh, just as we're going through it. Now, back to the teacher from if, if you do long for a teacher, if you do notice that's a desire, or if you do do well with guidance from some trusted person or you know teacher guide whatever you want to call it that can also be a wonderful 
a wonderful, loving, nurturing journey, you know? And I always say like, you know, you got to test when you go date, let's say you go dating, you go have a coffee with somebody. So to trust the person instantly maybe isn't the smartest thing, but at a certain point, if it's three years later and you're living with them, you can't trust them. I don't know, like what's going on there, you know, either that is not correct or um, something's going on with, with the person who's, you know, unable to trust. So in a similar way, in, in relationships with teachers, I think assess, create a bond, uh, do your part. You know, I realize it's not all up to teachers. It's a, it's a relationship between a beautiful student, a teacher, a great teacher longs for a great student. I don't mean longs for it like, but they, they recognize it. It's be dedicated, be focused, be interested. Um, and, uh, you know, it will blossom with trust between, you know, it's not all one-sided. It's a, and the thing is about a teacher, it's not, it's not like, oh, if I get the teacher, blah, blah, blah. It makes it easier, a lot easier because they can say, hey, listen, think about it like a Sherpa climbing Mount Everest. You know, it's like um, nobody just grabs their backpack and heads up the mountain. You know, you got to prepare, you got to do some training. Presumably you've been doing training prior to that even just to have the idea. You've got to have oxygen. You've got to have a plan for when the shit hits the fan. Um, you've got to have a plan for getting confused at times. You've got to have all these plans. And a Sherpa is somebody that knows the terrain, can breathe where the altitude is high and can say, that looks like the right direction, but actually it's gonna loop you around and deplete your resources. So a guru or a, or a good teacher is good for that. They can help you when you could get really spun around about something. Because life hits, not every minute is like, you know, you may be like, oh, I wanna learn this. And then the next day comes. Oh, I want to learn this. And then, you know, five months down the road, ah, this. Is there anything else? I remember people sometimes you they ask for a month if I give them a month. But then 10, 10 months later, they're like, you got another month? Oh. Sometimes people. So what does that mean to me? It's like that's your month. That's to develop a strong relationship. Doesn't mean you don't learn many mantras in the study of Sanskrit, but that's the study of Sanskrit. Not the intimacy you create with a mantra that becomes your mantra. So, okay, back to, um, so I think a teacher can be, you know, I give metaphors and stories, but now I think a teacher can be very useful if you're open to that kind of relationship. And if you find, if you're, the luck of the draw for you is to encounter someone who is genuine, who really cares about you. Um, and that's a step-by-step -step process. You got to see what happens between that person but if that's the case it can be really wonderful they can really transfer so much about seeing you know my guru he transferred so much about seeing that when he left his form though I was deeply sad because I loved him my seeing was intact I had learned how to see with yogic eyes and uh, a real guide in the subjects of yoga and meditative philosophy and all these kinds of things, whatever tradition they hail from, they'll be able to show you. They'll go like, hey, check out this. The person, oh my God, I didn't see it. 
if you're listening to the podcast, what Manorma just did was she took her glasses off and then, and then had as if you could look through the yogic, the yogic lens, um, because of your teacher, they're giving you those lenses. So that's really beautiful. And certainly I feel like that's what my um, teachers have done for me. Um, but you're a teacher. So tell us about what you're teaching these days. And, you know, yeah. so what I teach, I teach, um, well, I teach meditation, yoga philosophy, uh, and how to live a yogic life. I take the yoga philosophy. I always knew I wasn't going to be an Indian man who was incarnated in the 1930s and twenties. Right. I was, uh, I mean, a very American lady. I grew up in upstate New York, you know, I was uh, baseball and mac and cheese when I was a kid, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but I did have this unusual background. And so I think I'm able to translate um, that piece and how to have your, a rich life in the sense of a rich manifest life, an actualized life, and then how to go deeper and deeper into spiritual practice, you know? That is of interest to me, both of those, um, in as healthy a way as possible, in as grounded a way as possible. So what do I teach? Through the, the way I'm able to convey that is through courses on yoga philosophy, meditation, and Sanskrit. So what is coming up? Now, people think Sanskrit is, uh, oh, gosh, you know, it's like a language. And, but it's, yes, it's a language, but it's also woven into the language encased is within the grammar itself is the philosophy of the yogi. It's really quite cool. When I started to uncover this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So that, that's really a channel that I teach on. And that's happening the next year long training for Sanskrit level one, which is an online course is happening uh, September. I believe it's the 18th, but you can check the website. It's like the, the second or third week end. It's on a Saturday, Sunday in the mornings um, in September. So that's starting. Uh, the level two will start in August, the second year. Um, and then I have every month a series of satsangs. And uh, those are on Fridays and students can find out about that if they're interested. And then beyond that, um, you know, there's so many ways to find me, but sometimes I offer a course on a specific text and that will be listed on the site probably in the next two months. But um, until then, you know, trying to finish up other projects. I took on some big projects in the last two years and some translation projects that I want to complete before I launch another big course. Amazing. Yeah. Norma, what is your truth? My truth is beingness and merging into air. And that's on the highest level. And as an individual, it's kindness and connectivity and being a place where love can expand as much as possible. So, uh, and I'm able to understand the play and the dance between the universal and the it's so beautiful. Thank you for being my guest on meditation. Happy hour tea talk and truth with Karuna. Um, 
You can find Menorma at sanskritstudies.org. She has graced her, her us with her presence in the past on Mind Oasis. Um, and I expect sometime in the near future that we'll be able to convince her to join us again. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So um, Menorma, um, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us. And it's just been a total delight. Thank you. It's been absolutely my pleasure to be here with you. I've just enjoyed it. I love what you've I love what you're creating at Mind Oasis. I love that usage of that word, Mind Oasis, those two together, but that word Oasis is just like so, um, yeah, how can we really saturate ourselves, um, you know, and support ourselves? And I love what you're doing. I'm just so honored and thrilled to be a part of your podcast and your community. Thank you so much. Thank you.